0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race
1: theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us.
0: Welcome back to a new season of Centering the Asian American Christian Podcast. My name is Daniel Lee, your host for this season. I'm also a professor of theology and Asian American studies at Fuller Seminary. The topic for this season is Race and Grace, Critical Race Theory and Asian American Christianity. This season is made up of a series of conversations that I'm having with Dr. Alexander Jun, professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University.
1: Thank you very much, it's
0: good to be back. Good to have you with us. Um, So as uh, we have clarified in the first season, there's so many academic resources out there, but our goal for this whole season is to be able to unpack these ideas from critical race theory and the discussions and the controversy around it, In a way that, you know, people in their churches or or pastors can make sense of this thing. There's a lot of noise and there's definitely a lack of clarity out there. This episode will focus on what people are calling whiteness Mm. and uh, how that connects to, I think, in Alex, in my mind, um, to this, uh, to the doctrine of sin. So let's start there because actually I've had people ask me, what is whiteness? I mean... Are you just, do you do you hate white people? Like, what are we talking about?
1: Yeah, that's good. One of the challenges, I think, when you talk about racism, and it's primarily the pushback is from white people um, and white Christians, and I think it's important for us to recognize that we're talking about a concept of whiteness. And what is whiteness? It, it, it's an ideology, it's a culture, it's a way of thinking um, and behaving that is sometimes embodied by white people, but not always, right? I think about the Reverend Dr. Now West who once famously said, um, I am daily trying to kill the white supremacist that lives in me. Uh, this is a Black theologian, public theologian and scholar, Uh, for someone like him to say that reveals a lot about how whiteness is also embedded by people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I shared in, I think in the previous episode, my own journey has been, I long to be accepted by white culture Things that I did and uh, my mannerisms, my behavior, and my my thinking a lot of that a lot of that is rooted in my desire for whiteness, and so it is a culture. It is the dominant culture. It's so embedded in culture that we don't even see it, and, and so that's the challenge for critical race theorists to identify that.
0: What do you think about? Um this shift in our thinking because previously, like you know, a couple of years, decades ago or whatever, we were talking about uh, multiculturalism, about people getting along, right? But now the conversation has become about racial justice and about whiteness or white supremacy. I mean, people were talking about white supremacy for a long time, but the idea of white supremacy, the language of white supremacy has become mainstream. And we're not talking about everybody getting along all the culture is kind of getting along in terms of multiculturalism, which was like, I think high day was like in the eighties, nineties, we've shifted over to a different way of thinking about these things. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it is definitely a shift. You can see how the language has evolved to think back to the seventies, how most of the diversity education was around tolerance we would say tolerance is important. Mm. Uh, Daniel, I cannot imagine today that we walk around <laughs> proudly saying, I'm so glad that I'm tolerated, right? I mean, <laughs> but that reveals a lot of the cutting edge, uh, more popular uh, DEI consulting work that was being done and then it was multicultural and it was accepting other cultures. Let's talk about heroes and holidays and let's have food together. Mm. Uh, it was more cultural appreciation. None of those actually addressed some of the systemic issues uh, that were a long time in place. I wanted to share a story that I often talk about. Um, R. Roosevelt Thomas mm. and Woodruff had written this book on diversity, this is probably just at the turn of the century, 20 years ago. And the best part of the book for me is this story of the elephant and the giraffe. So if you think it'd be okay for me to retell some of this story, I think it'd be really helpful. And maybe for this episode, I'll probably refer a lot to it. Uh, But as all stories go, once upon a time, there was this giraffe and the giraffe had a beautiful home. Um, built perfectly to meet the needs and specifications of giraffes. Uh, As you can imagine, narrow hallways, tall windows that can overlook into the soaring vistas, etc., and won multiple giraffe house of the year awards and things like that. Uh, And one day this giraffe, she's looking outside the window and she sees her friend, the elephant and says, oh, I know that elephant. Our children are in AYSO together and PTSA. And I, I think this person is also into houses. Let me invite this person over. So the elephant is delighted. The elephant comes over and encounters the first problem. Can't get in through the door so the giraffe says oh i can make accommodations the way i've built the house i can unhinge the doors and grant you access so the elephant comes in the giraffe is distracted for a moment and says make yourself at home i'll be right back well the elephant proceeds to try to walk up the stairs but it's too weak for the girth of the elephant tries to walk through a hallway that's too narrow uh, for the elephant you can imagine the scene of photos being knocked down and lamps falling and things like that. And so the giraffe says to the elephant, her friend, I see the problem. It's you. You're too fat. You need to get uh, lighter on your feet, maybe take ballet lessons, lose some weight. I love having you here, but you're going to need to change in order for you to stay. And the elephant's not convinced, right? The elephant's response to her new friend is simply this. I'm not sure that a house that was built for giraffes Hmm. was ever intended for elephants. That really gets to the heart of structural uh, architecture and things that are in place. And I'd love to explore that more with you.
0: Right. Let's think about that illustration because somebody somebody can say, well, look, so elephant has uh, her own home giraffe has our own home what's the problem right so we all kind of live in our own homes right why should we be upset about the fact that giraffe's home is the way that it is
1: so good so good daniel that's right that's the end of this par- parable and the story but this is where it gets really fun if we wanted to extrapolate out that's exactly right um and first of all the the giraffe feels this righteous indignation to say hang on I invited you to my house. Why would you then criticize me for what I've done? Well, let's say it turns out that the best schools or the best neighborhoods—the ones that is uh, that windows don't get broken and houses and items are not stolen—is predominantly from giraffe homes. But the elephant homes, there's regular theft and crime and all these things, and they don't feel as safe. Even elephants committing crimes against other elephants. And this is where giraffes will point out and say, look at this elephant on elephant crime, right? (laughs) You all are the problem, right? Maybe it's something in the DNA of the giraffes that we're not violent people. Uh, You know, whatever you can imagine, just the range of conversations. But if the best schools, the best resources, uh, natural resources and otherwise, happen to be in places where it benefits giraffes, you can understand why others would say, hang on, I want this too. And there's nothing wrong with saying that I want this too. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the giraffe Bible. Because I've had this conversation with different people, right? <laughs> so from the parable of what to
0: reality, this is common idea, common racial idea, the fact that Black people by DNA, right? Are just violent people or by culture, violent people. Roland Barthes has this idea, for Friendship, um, philosopher has this idea of uh, of modern myths, right? Myth. We have all this kind of cultural myth, and one of the things that modern myths do is talk about culture devoid of history, right? So culturally, you know, elephants happen to be violent, but where is the history? How do we get here, <laughs> right? That's I mean, good. so. So this high, broader context of history that we think about, uh, I you know, can you explain more about that? This, uh, this historical understanding of how things come about, right, uh, that a lot of people just don't think about.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, it is the, the essence of my next book that I'm working on is this idea of settler colonial ideology to say that when you've arrived to, a, 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 to you a new place, but other nations existed here, to say, well, they're not like me. And I know that I'm not a savage, so they must be savages. Uh, That drives a lot of development, a lot of capitalism. It drives a lot of our missionary endeavors. Um, uh, And so you can see that naturally our thinking of the other is that they are less than. And that's, you know, in more practical terms, we're talking about anti-blackness, right? Um, That exists not just in white spaces, but Asian American spaces as well. And that's something we could address. But I wanna go back to this idea of ideology and what we embrace. And it's nice. It's a nice parable, right? Because we're not talking about any particular group. We're not talking about white people, uh, but it can be applied to white people in a dominant space. We're not talking about gender, but it applies to men in a patriarchal uh, male dominated spaces, especially in the Presbyterian church in America that I'm a part of. Uh, and so there's a lot that you can think about in, in, in that regard. It's anyone who's in a dominant group. The privilege of being in a dominant group is not having to ever think about your privilege of being in that dominant group. So you and I've talked about this before. It really comes down to things like normativity, And in this case, it would be giraffe normativity. Uh, If you were to criticize the giraffes in this example, they're like, what are you talking about? I love other elephants. And in fact, I don't even see animals. They're all the same. (laughs) I don't even see animals. I don't see you as any different (laughs) from me. We're all the same. Uh, But we recognize normativity in there. So for if you're in the dominant group, all you need to do is act naturally.
0: Right, right. And I mean, I mean,
1: system set up to benefit.
0: you. In their parable, once again, it, it will be the fact that there's a long history of even people who want to get out of certain neighborhoods or wealthy in their neighborhoods can't get out. Like w- these laws are there, right? And these laws and practices are there not only within, I mean, in the, in the commercial sector, but also within like, our local and national government. So when we bring that into consideration, we realize it's not just individual people only. It's a longer history of thinking about these things. And that's basically how do we kind of start unpacking this thing, not individual people.
1: Yeah, I I have something that I wanted to add. As it ties into and as it pertains to critical race theory, um, which is also part of what we want to talk about, is this idea, another tenet of critical race theory, is whiteness as property, right? This idea that assumptions Mm -hmm. and privileges and the benefits of identifying as white in the dominant group are actually very valuable assets that white people seek to protect, right? So that really gets to this idea of redlining to say, we don't want infiltration of certain communities into what we consider normal. And you can see back in history with the, uh, the uh, desegregation of schools and communities, public pools shut down. Right? Because there were people who said, we'd rather not have swimming pools that are integrated. We'll create our own country clubs, our own uh, K-12 Christian schools in new neighborhoods. And you saw this white flight from certain neighborhoods. And so you can see how whiteness as property as one of the tenets of CRT gets played out into new areas and new policies and new ideologies that form. That's the essence of whiteness.
0: Uh, that's really powerful because we're talking about something tangible, right? Because we're, we're, whiteness seems like such an esoteric idea and just something that actually doesn't, you know, it's consequential, well, I look this way, but we're talking about a concrete, maybe even financial economic impact of what we're talking about, which is actually the connection between to Marxism as well as a political, economic, and these things are all intertwined. They're not actually separate in a sense.
1: And then the other part that I love to talk about, the power of whiteness and how it then conflates for the white Christian, that we cannot separate whiteness from our faith, whiteness from Christianity, whiteness from Americanness. And so that's a powerful and sometimes very dangerous formula, that if we conflate whiteness with American, with Christian, and you identify with all of those things, when you start attacking whiteness... White Christians get offended. But this is not something explicit, right? Because that's what's weird about it.
0: People aren't thinking, I mean, okay. One of the things that's been really helpful for me is to kind of distinguish white normativity versus white supremacy, right? Because I mean, KKK, we get that, right? And a lot of people that are complaining, I mean, they're not necessarily KKK. They just feel like, hey, wait a minute. Like there's, I'm just trying to be a human, right? It's, it's, it's more of an implicit, it's more of a passive Understanding of whiteness or owning of whiteness, not an active, aggressive, explicit way of talking about the fact that white people are better. I mean, talk about the difference between white normativity or whiteness in different expressions, right? Uh, white supremacy, white normativity, or white privilege, or uh, what, you know, how do you kind of break it all apart?
1: Yeah. Uh, I love that concept of white normativity as being somehow. Uh, it's almost acceptable if we're not listening carefully because white supremacy will all agree that it's wrong. And so then when we use the term, we we always assume, and many scholars have said this, uh, we're so hyper-individualistic that when we hear racism or white supremacy, we think it has to be individual, first of all. It has to be malicious, second. And third, it has to be intentional. Right. And so many people go down their checklist and they say, okay, it wasn't, I didn't do it. I didn't intentionally do it. And I wasn't mean about it. I'm a nice person. And that's niceness. If we wanted to talk about whiteness and niceness, uh, that seems to go hand in hand. and seems to tie in with a Christian approach to niceness as well. Um, Niceness is different from kindness. And I'm happy to talk about that. But this is really rooted in this idea of normativity. And it infiltrates the church, for example, for example. What kind of church do you attend, Alex? And I say, it's a predominantly Asian church or Korean church. And people complimented me in the past saying, I love the way Koreans pray, right? This waterfall prayer, Tong Song Kido, everybody pray all at once. And I said, OK, thank you. Um, how do you pray? And they said, Oh, we just pray normal. <laughs> it, you know, or, or you go to a Korean church. That's beautiful. You have kimchi during lunch. Yeah. 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 We have that. How about you? What kind of church do you attend? And they say, oh, I attend a normal church, normal church. So it's race neutral for white people. And I say, Oh, you go to a white church and they say, no, no, it's a regular church. So somehow white normativity whiteness is so normalized for them that it invades even your spiritual dimensions, so I want that to marinate with our listeners for a minute. Now you
0: use the word white neutral, but you're using I think there's a technical term here that we're, we're using because you don't mean race neutral as in like it's benign. That's not what you mean by that. There's something here that's happening. That's and I right. Think it, it can be confusing in a sense because it sounds like, oh well, you're just being neutral. You're being, yeah. you're being kind of uh, in a way, uh, you know,
1: like normal <laughs> once again, like, you know you said this last time, you're choosing to exclude race in your conversations. And I said this last time, you are uncritical in your race theory. Um, And and that's the problem. But if you're in the dominant group, you have the privilege and the freedom to not have to think about this aspect of your identity. That's why so many uh, white Christian sisters and brothers will say things like, I don't identify with my culture or my ethnicity, I'm just a Christian, right? Um, They won't say that they're white, they might not say they're American, they'll just say they're Christian. But if push comes to shove, when you ask them, and here's an example, when someone says, yeah, not everything needs to be so culturally embedded, Alex, right? And we're having lunch, and I'm like, why are you using a fork? you know, why wouldn't you use chopsticks? How is it not culturally embedded in your approaches? So and that's a, perhaps a silly example, but it's an ongoing challenge.
0: Yeah. I meet a student over here, you know, over Fuller. she was like, I am so excited to be at such a diverse context because I get to learn from people of so many backgrounds because it's so sad because I don't have culture. Like, you know, I have nothing, but I can learn from the culture of other people. And I was like, You don't have a culture like I know you're from the Midwest, but that's a culture that's like a very particular culture. But it just seems kind of totally invisible in a sense, like you don't, you, you just don't think about that as being a thing or even influencing
1: your faith or your outlook. This is where it gets really challenging when folks in a dominant white Group say we want diversity, and if you're a person of color, I think you can relate to this. To say you, when you, when a large white group says they want diversity, you as a person of color naturally become their diversity, and what comes with that is what I call the dual appointment of being um, black, indigenous person of color. A dual appointment is if you're a pastor or professor or a member at a church, what have you people celebrate your presence. But the expectation also is that you are the ambassador of the diversity of your people. And so, hey, what do you think about, what's the Asian American perspective on this, Daniel? What's the Korean perspective on this, Alex? And then you become the expert on this topic or the ambassador on this topic. That's the dual appointment, the first appointment is the visible one. Everybody has a job. Everyone has a job description. Everyone has a you know membership in something. That's the visible. The invisible appointment is the constant conversations, the teaching, the, the tutoring, the guidance, all of those types of things. And that's the part that kills people. Like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's never one significant incident. It's just a thousand tiny microaggressions.
0: We know what we get paid for. We get paid for that visible work. We just don't get paid for the invisible work. I think that's part of the issue. I think what's weird is that I've thought about this for myself because I'm in a predominantly like white institution you know, for some people who are serving in like Korean American churches or, or, you know, Chinese American churches or like Thai American churches, because their context is not, is not dominantly white, it's hard for them to see why you talk about it so much. So I think it has to do with the context as well, right? Because in, in the church context, if it's an Asian American context, like you don't think about it on a regular basis. That's not what's, that's what's pressing against you, although, like, you know, it's everywhere in some sense, you know?
1: Yeah, that's right. In fairness, I think of a good number of Christians in America who are increasingly feeling threatened um, that our faith or our way of life has been challenged. And there's something a little bit to that. Uh, When people start thinking like, oh, all of what we believe our religious freedoms and practices are under threat, then naturally you start worrying and you can start recognizing Uh, This sort of the principalities and powers uh, that are starting to dominate and change culture, right? So it's not like you can't see it. If you're a dominant white Christian, you can see how this is under threat, how Christianity is under threat. Unfortunately, they also assume that whiteness is under threat. And that's just not true. But to your question, people of color naturally understand what that's like. And if we wanted to add another tenet to critical race theory, it would be experiential knowledge, right? That's another critical tenet of critical race theory, that folks who have historically been dispossessed and oppressed and have a minoritized experience have a better grasp of what's going on in the world as opposed to people who hold dominant positions in dominant spaces.
0: Right. So academically, those narratives might, you know, historical texts might not always talk about it, but in the lives of people, it's reflected because even the academic guild itself often is controlled and even societal narratives are controlled by people in power as well.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I feel a sermon coming on here, but when I think of Christ in his return, the first people that he went to were women and they were the first evangelists to share that he is risen, right? It's fascinating. If you think about the cultural context of how women were viewed, how minorities were viewed back then, as well as perhaps today, their voices mattered. Their oppressed, underrepresented voices were important in the storytelling of understanding dominance. And that's one of the the points of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a testimonial, right? That we can understand from their lived experiences what is going on. And I'm sure you'll have a challenge uh, to that, that people have pushed back on, right?
0: We talked about this before in our conversations, the idea of testimonial as witness to truth that it's not always scientific knowledge in terms of how we think about it, but we do rely a lot, just like what you're saying, even the biblical record, of testimonies as pointing to what the truth is, right, that determines so much of our lives, and that's actually what kind of you're talking about, the fact that the testimonials of people in the margins, and that actually points to the reality of what's happening in the world.
1: I, I want to build on this idea, and maybe I'll I'll try a sports metaphor if I think about how everybody hates the the Yankees right <laughs> in baseball they're like oh it's so well funded and they're famous and they have winning seasons and all of these world series championships And let's say some smaller market, like now I'm about to offend somebody, but let's think of some team that has, you know, the Angels, for example, uh, who, you know, are just horrible, right? Just a horrible franchise, horrible baseball team. Um, And so you look at the history, and there are fans who love them who are gonna say, oh, you don't know what it's like to be an Angels fan, right? We know what it's like to suffer. We understand what it's like to not have a winning season year after year after year. You know, that gets to the heart of this experiential knowledge. Uh, it's a horribly crude example. But, you know, <laughs> if you're never on the winning team, you can appreciate what it's like to be under-recognized and underserved. Mm-hmm. And you have a different view and a different perspective of the world. Well, coming back to... Uh, <laughs> so I,
0: I wash my hands of this, this a- angel's analogy, okay? Because <laughs> I don't want to get into it. Think about whiteness. So we talked about you know, white supremacy and white normativity. I mean, like on a regular basis, I I assign this article by Michael Morris called Standard White talking about white normativity and the fact that white supremacy was talking about white people being better, white normativity is talking about, we're just normal, right? The fact that, and then you can say, and then in strange way, I mean, the example he gives is like, well, you can even be better than white people, but you can be you can be penalized for that. He goes, his example is like, look, you can say black people are so athletic, but they're beasts, aren't they? Like this idea, right? So it doesn't matter. Or you can say, oh, Asian Americans are so good at math, but they're like robots, aren't they? Like this idea, right? And the fact that in a strange way, even though you're not talking about white people being better, you can still have this ideology that functions and really ends up kind of controlling uh, the framework or the narratives of how our society works. Thinking about that, we've, we've talked about white normativity, white supremacy. Okay white privilege some people hear the word privilege and they flip out like because it's it's okay so there's as you know there are a lot of white poor white people it's not like it's not like all white people are rich it's just not true
1: yeah
0: how do people how do we understand and unpack white
1: privilege yeah that's good again listeners can disagree with this but you know if you're primarily individualistic in your worldview right then you're going to have a hard time understanding systems and structures that benefit you let's use privilege in a different way right i can give several examples and i do this when i give talks to rooms full of people. And I say, how did you get in here? And they say, what do you mean? I just, I didn't think about it. I just came in. I go, you just walked in. You didn't look for wheelchair accessibility. You didn't look for uh, signs that helped with disabled, right? Not the ramps, not the elevators. You, it came naturally to you. And I share that because that's an example of ability privilege now when i share that with a room full of people did i just shame every single able-bodied person to make them feel bad and Mm. guilty for being able-bodied goodness gracious no but i'm trying to point out that there's privilege in never having to think about things that others do um blue passport privilege if you're poor in america you're still so much better off than 90% of the rest of the world. Uh, We have running water and we, except for Michigan, we have other places where, you know, clean drinking water and uh, streets and sanitation and all these things. This is true, the common good um, for the rich and the poor, right? That's a privilege of being in the United States. That's just not true for others. Should you feel bad for being an American then? Probably he would say no again, right? That's that's the examples I like to use to try uh-huh. to understand white privilege.
0: Once again, it's, it's about
1: awareness and seeing
0: the fact that this is real. And it doesn't mean you're privileged in every way. It's not like it's not like economic privilege of kind of growing you. up, you know, being born in like a rich to rich parents. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah. We're not saying all white people are rich. We're not talking about that. Yeah, we're talking but, about the fact that yeah. But
1: in certain cases. Like maybe your whiteness is one less thing you have to worry about. One less thing in a particular case, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, This is an interesting conversation I have with some white women, right? Because uh, for me, my maleness and male privilege is very strong, especially in my male-dominated patriarchal uh, PCA. It makes it easy for me to act naturally Hmm. and be someone who possesses tremendous amount of privilege and power. Right, not true for women, but then when it comes to whiteness, white women have tremendous benefits for their whiteness that I do not. Right, so there's an example of not a trade-off. You know, we're not we're not talking about uh, oppression Olympics and who has it better and who has it worse. We're just recognizing various forms of identities that we have to worry about. And this is the idea that comes up with intersectionality, which we can talk more on. Um, And this idea of being Kimberly Crenshaw, who came up with the original idea of what it means to be black and a woman, right? So they've got to deal with feminism issues and, Anti-blackness.
0: Yeah, we're we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna. I'm super excited because we're gonna talk about that in a later episode. Just because there's so much to unpack in terms of intersectionality. Um, I want to go back and and talk about because we've talked a lot about social political realities, uh, but I want to connect this to how we think about our faith and how we think about theology. Because both of us thought that there was something here that helped us to understand the doctrine of sin, particularly. And uh, that this actually gives us an insight, critical race theory, these discussions give us a particular insight and helps us to
1: better understand how sin and evil works in the world. That's good. Yeah. Um, again, I, I could go- lean back into my own testimony and uh, share some of the pushback that I think a lot of my white Christian sisters and brothers have been critical of. Uh, where they say, I don't understand why I need to confess anything that happened with whiteness. It, you know, I didn't own slaves and I didn't, uh, I didn't participate in some of these activities actively or willfully or malicious- maliciously. So why would I have to feel bad or guilty? And it's this idea of the, why I had a hard time understanding Christianity. Well, someone would say to me, you're a sinner. And you were a born a sinner. And I said, well, I haven't murdered anybody or you know, stolen money or whatever the, the reasons are that you should go to hell. And, and people would share the gospel with me, said, no, you're a sinner because you were born in sin because of Adam. And it was Adam's sin. I had such a hard time understanding that connection, right? Um, I had as equally hard time understanding Christ in the second Adam. Um, that all my sins are forgiven, and I've righteousness was then imputed to me. Uh, this is one theor- theological uh, approach to understanding um, federal headship. I understand that. But th- that was my biggest challenge. I'm like, well, I don't deserve hell because of what somebody else did, my father Adam, and I don't deserve salvation because of what Jesus did. Right. I want to earn it. I want to work. It's what I do, not the system that's in place. Well, there may be listeners here who align with my theological convictions and say, that's right. Yes. Amen. If you can understand the covenantal relationship of God and people, then you can understand that it's not individual work that brought us. I'll give one more example again, and I'll, I'll pick a winning team this time. Um, the Dodgers, right? Won the Super Bowl, uh, the World <laughs> Series. I almost said the Super Bowl, sorry. Um, it shows you how little I know about sports. So the Los Angeles Dodgers won. They got Dodgers fans, and somebody said, we won, right? And we, uh, we won. And I want to say, I'm sorry, what is your affiliations with the Los Angeles Dodgers organization? You know, were you a player, a coach? Um, Are you affiliated in any way? No, you're just a fan and you identify and you use the collective we. That's not a stretch for people, right? We understand that. But then when it comes to systemic issues where we benefit from it, um, when it comes to whiteness, we say, oh, no, no, no. I'm an individual in these decisions. Again, I'm just trying to point out some inconsistencies.
0: I mean, you're just talking about Romans, right? Just Paul, right? I mean, Romans 5, 19, it says, uh, for justice through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. Also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. So, Well done, Pastor. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, this idea of of kind of corporate spiritual uh, identity. I want to think about this. For me, I think what's been really, really helpful is to think about sin and evil, not only in an individualistic way, but as Ephesians talks about, the fact that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers. Right? This is the idea of powers and principalities. And I think we generally think about this as like this idea of like angels and demons and stuff like that. And you know, I'm I'm open to that idea. Like you know, I think there's definitely more than just a Western way of thinking about reality. But there's also uh, as theologian Walter Wink would basically point out, there is these spirits, powers and principalities and spirits of our society, of our institutions that are manifestations, manifestations of, of evil, right? That God is confronting. That's and I, you know, I, yeah. I think if we think about evil that way, not just personally people committing sin, then we can start thinking about how we would engage something like the idea of whiteness as an idol, right? Because, I mean, you can almost think about, about whiteness as, as idolatry, like something you value, something, you know, my precious in a
1: sense. I mean, without without mentioning it, without even knowing about it. That's right. So embedded is it in our ideology that we can't name it, we can't recognize it. But I, I love what you're saying about how its principalities and powers Uh, Because I think it is absolutely rooted, Satan uh, is very good at picking out things that are good, and turning them into something that's bad. You know, when you think about structures and societies that are in place, and and, uh, this is a challenge that I can recognize, and uh, when some white people will say, you know, I am not willfully racist, but everybody can be a part of white supremacy. Just like certain men are not rapists, but all men are culpable in this role of patriarchy and and sexism. And if we talk about uh, lots of examples like that, if people in power, not everybody is abusive, but when you're in a position of power, you recognize that there is some culpability in our roles of having power that can lord over other people. I think what's weird is that, I mean, we know as Christians,
0: all of us are sinners. Like it's a common, it's a universal common statement. And I think some people find that really bizarre to be like, hey, why are we distinguishing certain types of people as being more complicit? And what's weird to to men here talking about it is that we can be like, we're all sinners. Um, You know, sexism among many. I just don't think it's, it's that big of a deal. We can say something like that and just, not have any clue as to how the powers and and, and you know uh, powers and principalities of of, of sexism patriarchy of uh, of rape culture has infiltrated our our minds and it's Absolutely. impacting us, but because we don't suffer directly from it, we just think you know what you're just making too 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 big of a deal about this.
1: That's right, and a big part of that conversation is we're talking about sexism and uh, misogyny is we should listen to more women right? uh, and learn from. And that's the dilemma also, is that the burden should not fall on women to talk only about issues that women can talk about. This is the responsibility of men as well in spaces where there are just men. And if we can extend that one step further, That's true for my white sisters and brothers. These conversations should be happening with and among other white Christians, not just bringing in the Christian of color of the day to come and preach a sermon on racial reconciliation and do a workshop. It should be a regular part of our conversations.
0: Thank you, Alex. I mean, I think this, how do we all of us in our places kind of own uh, this reality, I think is, is so important. What does this mean for Asian American Christians? Because obviously, then you know, you've mentioned this before. We're talking about whiteness and white privilege. It's, it's complicating. I mean, definitely, there's a, people talk about white adjacency for Asian Americans, the fact that we can kind of get by, we can be invisible. As you know, modern minority myth is it's a racial idea, not just economic one. Modern minority myth basically says, as long as you stay quiet, we'll let you succeed in certain areas but don't disturb the boat, right? So as, as Asian-American Christians, or even as Asian-Americans, how, how do we navigate this? Because obviously white, white supremacy or normativity, like in some sense, we can be complicit in it. We can be part of it. At the same time, we can suffer from it. It's just complicating in terms of what this looks like.
1: Yeah, that's good. I, I want to go back to that story, that parable that I'd shared about the elephant and the giraffe. And I think about so many elephants right? If I were to use Asian American Christians as the example that we were seeking uh, assimilation and we thought, well, I want the benefits and privileges that come with being in the dominant group. So an elephant looks in the mirror and doesn't like what she sees and says, I want to look like, think like, and act like uh, a giraffe. And so there you go. That makes your entire identity shift from who you are and the way God made you into some other identity and that you're just pretending to get along and go along and embrace all of these things and, and then hate all the things that you uh, may have been given to you uh, by birth, some of these uh, rights and privileges. And so that's the dilemma. And I think we can live in that tension for a moment and recognize it, that it's there.
0: Well, we'll we would have to continue on this conversation, you know, in the later episodes, once again, kind of making that connection to Asian American Christians and the church Uh, I think one of the things that we want to kind of uh, remember is that um, just as critical race theory in certain ideas helps us to flesh out and see uh, the forces of evil and sin, not just individual sin, but sin that resides in our world, we can talk about the fact that this is actually what Christ brings. You know, we talk about a cosmic salvation, the fact that Christ saves us. Christ is there to bring about the kingdom, a new kind of a world, right, Uh, when we Christ is talking about ushering the kingdom, and that it's not just a spiritual salvation we're talking about, we're talking about a different kind of society altogether, a different kind of lordship, you know, Alex, I want to end with this thought, like, because we we hear this sometimes, We, we have people who are saying, the problem is spiritual, therefore we should pray, right, well, you know, I, we shouldn't get into politics. We should just pray. You know, what do we what do we say to people like that who are just going to, I mean, because we do realize you and I agree to affect a deeper issue is spiritual. But I think what distinguishes how we think about it is the fact that no, the political is important as
1: well. That's right. That's right. Um, since we're talking about whiteness today, uh, the popular saying it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem, and therefore we just dismiss all the, the rhetoric about skin color. I would take it a step further and say it's a sin problem manifested through the skin problem. Hmm. Uh, the devil is so good and sneaky and crafty that he uses ultimately a uh, skin to reveal sin. Um, So I don't think we've taken it far enough. And actually the order was reversed and it absolutely becomes political.
0: Yeah. And how sometimes we can actually hyper-spiritualize something to avoid the problem. (laughs) It's a matter of like avoiding sin so we can kind of spiritualize it away in a sense.
1: Well, and that goes back to other examples, right? Should we be invading other countries? No, we should just pray. And just use the gospel, right? All this talk about uh, abortion, anti-abortion. Why don't we say just preach the gospel? Don't worry about uh, who, who, who sits on the Supreme Court and what votes pass. If it, we were consistent in our thinking and we wanted to spiritualize everything. Um, again, another topic for another time. But um, we're, I'm seeking to be at least consistent in our application of spiritualizing some things
0: right? If nothing else, try to be more consistent into how we think about these things. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you so much, Alex, for being with us. We will continue on this conversation at our next episode. Thank you. This has been Centering, the Asian American
1: Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember,
0: God loves and embraces all of who you are.